This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Anley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. The state will see tens of millions of dollars from legal settlements tied to the opioid crisis. At the same time, some federal funding for substance use disorder services will be ending in the next year or two. NHPR's Paul Kuno-Booth and Boston, the Boston Globe's Amanda Goki join us now to discuss here on the Recap. Welcome to you both. Hey, Rick. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for coming in this morning. First, Paul, let's start with you. How much money will come from those settlements and, and how will it be distributed? I imagine much of this is, is going toward addressing the ongoing crisis. Right. And just to remind people, these are the settlements with a variety of drug makers, distributors, pharmacy chains who are accused of fueling this opioid crisis that that continues to rage across the country. New Hampshire expects to receive about $300 million in total over the next two decades. So it is a substantial amount of money. And all of that is supposed to go towards addressing the effects of opioid addiction in one way or another. That can, of course, be a large range of things, anything from treatment to recovery services to law enforcement and emergency response. Some of that money is already starting to go out the door. Earlier this year, the state approved about $6.5 million worth of grants for a range of things, expanding harm reduction services, opening more recovery housing, creating more peer support for people involved in the criminal justice system and, and various other projects. So there, are, there is a range of ways that, that New Hampshire is starting to, to put this money to use. And of course, there's much more on the way. Yeah. And, and uh, cities and counties in New Hampshire have spent a lot of money in recent years responding to this, this crisis. How, how could the money from the settlements actually help local governments over those 20 years? So there's a couple ways. Some of this money, 15%, actually goes directly to a group of cities, towns, and counties that filed their own lawsuits against these companies. They can use that money as they see fit to address opioid addiction locally. The state is also making some funding available to help cities and counties offset past costs. A big focus of that is addiction treatment for people incarcerated in county jails. Jails have increasingly been providing what's known as medication-assisted treatment. Um, So that's medications like Suboxone that help uh, reduce cravings for opioids. Those medications are one of the most effective treatments we have for opioid addiction, and members of the commission overseeing these settlement funds say that should remain a a top priority, but uh, it does get expensive, so the state is looking to help counties uh, recoup some of those funds. Now, Amanda, you reported that some federal funding for substance use disorder services is ending in the next year or two. How could that affect systems of care that the state has built up over time that uh, Paul was talking about? Yeah, for sure. So to understand a little bit more about why this funding is decreasing and what specifically it funds, basically, the state has been receiving some of this funding as a result of a federal formula that gives a lot of weight to our national ranking. And so when it first came out, we were kind of at the top of the pack as far as being worst in the country for the opioid crisis. We're now more in the middle of the pack um, as the problem has worsened more quickly in other states. Um, So the funding that we're talking about comes to the state through a program that's called the State Opioid Response. And right now, those resources are primarily going to fund the state's doorways program. That's a system of regional centers that assess people, offer referrals, and coordinate care to people seeking treatment. They're operated by hospitals, but they rely on this funding for staffing and operating expenses. The state opioid response money also goes to recovery community organizations, the two-on-one phone number, and crisis housing. And it's filling gaps to finance room and board for some kinds of residential treatment that Medicaid cannot pay for. Um, 
from what I've seen, the, de- the decline could be anywhere from 28 million to 6 million. And, you know, of course, there's concerns about how the state is going to pay for the doorways program in particular. Moving forward, is that going to come from state money, other grants? That sort of remains an open question at this point. Okay, so a big range there you're talking about. Could could the money from opioid settlements that we're talking about here make up for that loss in federal funding? Of course, you know, we're, we're talking about getting this money over the next 20 years. That's right. And that's a great point that Paul and I were talking about just before we came on the air, that there is this question of timing. So the way the federal grant timing worked out is is different than when you have sort of a 20-year time period that you're looking at various grant sources or various opioid settlement funding coming in sort of scattered through that time period. Mm-hmm. Um You know, I looked at the law and the RSA that governs how this money is spent. There's certainly nothing in there that would prevent uh, this money from going towards that. But there's sort of an open conversation right now about what's the best use of the money. This is a time to reevaluate how we're handling the opioid crisis and and where money is is going, how it's being spent, how these programs are being um, run. So I think there's a lot of questions moving forward Um, in terms of who gets to decide. It will be up to the Department of Health and Human Services Commissioner, as well as the advisory commission that Paul already mentioned. A lot of the talk about New Hampshire's drug crisis focuses on cities, but rural areas have also been hit hard, um, especially in the northern part of the state. Paul, what are some of the challenges specific to the North Country? Right. So overdose deaths, of course, increased across the state last year, but the impact was was really stark in Coas County. The per capita rate of overdose deaths there was was twice the rate in the state as a whole. So so communities up there have have really been feeling these these effects. And, you know, people I spoke to in the region say um, you, you, the challenges they face are not necessarily unique, but they are exacerbated in in various ways. So services are very limited in that part of the state. There's just one residential treatment center in the entire North Country, for instance. Transportation is, is another major barrier. This is a huge geographic area. Things are very spread out. So even if a service does exist somewhere, you might be a half hour or an hour away from it. And, and that's tough if you don't have a car. And a lot of places don't have much in terms of community-based supports for for people in recovery, things like sober homes, uh, peer recovery spaces, these things that help people build a a network, a strong support network that, that helps them sustain their recovery. Um, and, and that's especially important, you know, in a, a part of the state that's already so isolated. Now, I, I know you've done a lot of reporting on this, speaking to folks in, in northern New Hampshire um, to overcome some of those challenges. And, you, and listeners can find that reporting uh, online at nhpr.org. In other news this week, researchers at the University of New Hampshire are attaching biosensors to oysters in the Great Bay. Uh, Amanda, why oysters? Yeah, so it turns out that oysters are actually really fascinating creatures, and they're also really beneficial to the environment. So I spoke with UNH researcher Easton White, and he told me that the oysters in and of themselves actually kind of function as something like sensors in the environment when they're stressed out that can indicate that there's a problem with water quality. So the researchers are hooking these oysters up to the sensors basically to determine what exactly is going on with environmental factors as the oysters are reacting. So this will measure things like, have we gotten a heavy rain recently? Are we in the midst of a heat wave? Are there pollutants or toxins present in the water? And at the same time, they're detecting the oyster's movement, which is called gaping, whether they're opened or closed. And that's basically an indication if they're open 
happened. That means they're breathing and they're feeding. Things are probably going pretty well, is what the the researchers have told me. Um, And when they're doing well, as I said, they can really bring great environmental benefits. So a single oyster can filter between 40 to 50 gallons of water per day. That's one of those tiny little creatures. Yeah, it's a huge amount. I had no idea. I didn't know that either. And that just keeps the water sort of clean and healthy and benefits the entire ecosystem. And obviously, you know, humans benefit sure. from clean water as well. Now, wild oyster populations have declined in recent years, but but oyster farming is booming. Are, are these researchers using uh, wild oysters? Are they working with farmers? Yes. So they're going to be working with farmers. And, and as you mentioned, I, I was also shocked to learn that wild oysters have just been decimated recently. So estimates are that we've lost about 85 percent of wild oyster reefs in Mm. the past two centuries. So that's a huge, huge loss. But oyster farmers are sort of seeing this big demand. Um, In 2020 alone, the industry generated around $4.7 million. There's about a dozen um, farmers working in New Hampshire to farm oysters. I spoke with Laura Brown. So she has a small owner-operated farm in Little Bay. And she's really excited for this research because she said that this information is going to help her do a better job of taking care of the farmed oysters. And they offer all of those same environment, environmental benefits that wild oysters do. Some incredible science happening right here in the Granite State. Uh, researchers at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, speaking of which, are working to develop a new COVID-19 vaccine that would be administered using a nasal spray. Um, I want to ask uh, Paul, what's the benefit of having a nasal version of the vaccine, Paul? Yeah, so this is one of several nasal COVID vaccines that are under development right now. I spoke to the lead researcher, Dr. Peter Wright, this week, and he says this would have a couple potential advantages. One is that it's just easier to administer and to store. That could make it... um, you know, easier to distribute in parts of the developing world where vaccination rates are still pretty low. Um, he, he also says there's reason to think that uh, nasal vaccines in particular could be more effective at actually stopping viral spread, not just uh, preventing serious illness. That's because they would strengthen immunity in the upper respiratory tract in particular, which is, of course, where COVID-19 infections begin. So it wouldn't just protect necessarily the person who's used the spray, but it could protect others around them. That, that's the hope. Yeah. Where's Dartmouth in their development? What stage are they at? So they're hoping to begin the first clinical trials um, in the coming six months or so. Uh, I was told if all goes well, it's still probably at least 18 months to a year before it hits the market. But of course, doesn't seem like COVID is going anywhere in that time. So there is still a need for more vaccine development. Absolutely. There's been many weather records broken already this summer. As we know, it feels like the rain just won't quit. We've got more moving into the state of the moment. Amanda, how does this summer compare to, to previous years? Yeah, that's exactly right. So anecdotally, we've all sort of been experiencing this summer. It just feels like it must be up there. Um, So I basically got data that goes back to 1885 and found that this summer already ranks pretty highly when we look at the rainiest summers um, on record. So in June and July alone, that's not counting any of the rain we have received in August, the state received an average of 15.06 inches. So that would put us at the 13th rainiest summer since 1885. That's it, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I would have said a lot higher than that. And then, um, so if you're curious, 2006 is in that number one slot for the rainiest ever, and that was 19.22 inches. Um, And of course, you know, there's some variation depending on where you are in the state. So if we look at Manchester, for instance, you remember I was on to talk about just all the basement floodings we saw in one day. There was 800 calls, I think, to the the police department there. So they're actually already at their seventh rainiest summer uh, yet. 
I, you know, and this is anecdotal. I was talking to producer Mary McIntyre about this just before we came on. You know, mosquitoes seem to be everywhere, much more prevalent this year. Mosquito populations have been booming. I'm imagining that's because of all the wet weather. Um, is this rainy weather really to blame? Yeah, so that's a great question. And there are certain kinds of mosquitoes that thrive in rainy conditions. And that's because they, of course, breed and survive in wetland environments. So, you know, I've also noticed them in parts of Concord. That certainly have not has not been the case in previous years years. And I even got a report from um, the Shelburne Trail Club that up in the North Country that mosquitoes have been so bad in their neck of the woods that they actually stopped asking volunteers to complete trail maintenance. They just said, you know, we don't feel good Uh, about asking people to work in these conditions. I I don't blame them. I've got bug bites in my bug bites, I think. (laughs) Well, Paul and Amanda, thank you so much for for joining us. NHPR's Paul Kuno Booth and the Boston Globe's Amanda Gokey. You can find more of their reporting, by the way, at nhpr.org and bostonglobe.com. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We also suggest you check out the New Hampshire News Quiz. It's quick, it's fun, it's informative, and you can sign up to get the quiz emailed to you, or you can check it out each Thursday evening. It's fresh at nhpr.org quiz. And we're here next Friday, of course, with more. I'm Rick Ganley. This is NHPR.